Where is your faith? Well, we're going to address that subject right now from Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. We're going to talk about what happens when we're hit with the storms and squalls of life. How well do we do? Do we meet them with faith and fortitude, or do we meet them with doubt and unbelief? Now, life is full of many squalls. There are squalls of debt, unemployment, sickness, opposition. Squalls come in our relationships. We get discouraged. We get squalls of fear drowning us, swamping us. Squalls of sorrow, misunderstanding, failure. And I don't know about you, but I have a learning disability in this regard. <laughs> and even though I've been a Christian a long, long time, I'm still working on my faith response to trouble when it comes. And storms and squalls are different. You know, a storm, you can see it coming. The sky gets darker and you can batten down the hatches and you can get a little bit of support from people and you can say, well, I need to get some supplies in and I need to be ready and you get some warning. But a squall is something that comes out of nowhere. It's unexpected. It's unannounced. It's unacceptable. It's unfair. So we think so often. And you say, why this? Why now? Why here? Where are you, God? And God asks us for a faith response to storms. Now, it's good to ask the text questions and to find out what's happening here. And so we're just going to ask it, where was this? When was this? Why was this? And who was this? That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, it was evening, it was getting dark. Things always seem worse in the dark, don't they? It was after the crowd control, the exhaustion of dealing with people. And crowds are exhausting. If your job was to control those crowds for Jesus and to line up all the sick people and care for all the babies and mothers and all the things that needed doing, as Jesus became so popular so quickly, you'd be exhausted. And they were exhausted. And you have to look a little bit before and you have to look a little bit after to see that squall after squall after squall after squall, a line of squalls was in the plan of God for the disciples. And squalls are in the plan of God. We live in a period called life after the fall with a sinful nature. And Jesus deliberately prayed in the upper room in John 17, leave them here, Lord. Leave them here. Can't come home yet out of the squalls. No squalls in heaven. Not yet. But keep them from the evil one. Keep them from doubt. Keep them from drowning in unbelief. Keep them from the evil one because the evil one, the devil, wants to take us down. He wants to drown us. He wants to swamp us with the things that happen in life, the events that bring with them squalls of fear, panic, anxiety, so that you are so emotionally strung up you can hardly breathe. That's what happens when you're hit broadside and you say, where was that from? Everything was fine. And suddenly there is this event that's happened in your life. Well, the disciples had been under prolonged stress. They'd only just begun. Jesus had picked his team. 
You know how neat it is when you get picked and how horrible it is when you don't or you get unpicked <laughs> and you get moved off a team and somebody else gets your place. That's hard. Well, 12 men, 12 ordinary men, fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people had been picked for Jesus' team. And they were up about that. As the kids say, they were pumped about that. But around the corner of that choosing, as Jesus picked those 12 men to be his helpers and his disciples and his apostles, came the first squall. And as Jesus began his ministry and the crowds began to hear that if they had somebody dying of some terrible disease or they had somebody that was a leper living outside the city walls and they could get their loved one close to this holy man, he might get healed, you can imagine what happened. And the Pharisees heard about it. And the Pharisees' team from Jerusalem came to face off with Jesus' team. And when they watched and saw what was happening, even the miracles, they said, he's possessed. He's doing this by the power of Satan. Terrible thing for the disciples. I mean, these were their leaders. These were the big boys from Jerusalem. They didn't think that following Jesus was going to mean that they'd be in trouble with the big boys. And now they're calling Jesus Satan, the great Satan. Didn't feel good. And they began to think, oh, following Jesus isn't all fun and games. It isn't going to be a garden of roses. So behind them, they had that experience. And then on the heels of that, they didn't have time to eat, it says. They didn't have time to sleep. They didn't have time to do anything. And they were hungry and they were tired. And on the heels of that... Jesus' mother, Mary, and the brothers came and said, you better come home, Jesus. We heard about what you're doing to yourself. No time to eat, no time to look after yourself. And they tried to take him home, it says, by force. Put him in constraints. That's what you do for mad people. You tie them up and take them home until they're well again. He's unbalanced, they said. And suddenly the disciples are saying, hey, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Our families aren't understanding. All of them had left perhaps children, most of them children, probably they were all married, wives and children. And here, their families began to object to the fact that they were with Jesus. And that's a squall. That's a squall. Some of the kids have told me that once they put their trust and faith in Christ and tried to share it with their wonderful family, their wonderful family didn't really understand and they tried to take them back by force, as it were, and say, this isn't the way you grew up. This isn't what we taught you. That's a school. And we have to face these things as they come in life. So not only were the schools behind them, there were schools ahead of them. Of course, they didn't know that. You know, I've come to Christ asking questions, and I still do it. But the Bible says you have to ask your husband at home. So I wait till Stuart's home, which is very seldom, and he's in bed very late at night. And then I begin to ask all my impossible unanswerable questions. Uh, like, did Mrs. Noah like animals or was she allergic to fur? You know, sort of thing. Go to sleep, he says. I'll tell you in the morning. <laughs> but one of my questions is, did we know forwards before the fall? We know backwards, don't we? We all know the past, but none of us know the future. And my question is this, which is unanswerable because the scripture doesn't say it. Did we know forwards? And did in grace God say, 
I'd better cut that off from them now they've fallen. How could they live if they knew what was ahead? I don't know. I have a theory, a personal one, that we did know forwards because sometimes some people have little glimpses of the forward things, don't they? And maybe that's why. I don't know. But enough to say that Jesus knew. And Jesus knew around the corner of this event, this school, there was a madman waiting, possessed by legions of demons. And the disciples would be in Gentile, pig-eating country in a culture, that's a storm, going into another culture, trying to adjust, trying to understand, trying to deal with your prejudices. And they would be met by a madman chained in a graveyard who would snap chains by the power of the devil and they would come face to face with evil as they had never known it. That's a squall. And if you read a little further on, you'll see squall after squall after squall. Now in the middle, there was miracles, miracles, miracles. But there were squalls, squalls, squalls. And you know something? That's life. And you can waste the energy you need to deal with the present squall by praying, don't let there be another squall, which is what most of us spend our time and energy in prayer doing. And that's a waste of your time and energy because that's life. And Jesus has said, in the world, you will have squalls. In the world, you will have troubles. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so what was this? And where was this? It was in a familiar place. They were feeling sort of homesick. Peter was back on his beloved lake. That was good. But he knew that through the storm, even though it was dark, his little house was waiting. And maybe his children. And he'd been used to going fishing and going home at night and having their little arms around his neck and his wife and his family gather round. And now they were so near and yet so far, and they couldn't go home. Homesickness is squall. All sorts of squalls in life. I was thinking about the kids when their boyfriend drops them, goes out with their best friend. That's a squall. When they don't get picked for the team, when they fail the exam, or when their parents stop loving each other. That's a squall. That's a squall. And we big people, the devil doesn't get to us when we've lost weight, when we've had a good night's sleep, when we're up on our Bible reading and we're prayed up. He waits until we're exhausted, fit to be tied, under huge duress, in a job change, which is where they were, with all the stress that that's involved, and he says, aha, now. And he kicks us when we're down. So where was this and when was this? It was at the start of their relationship with Jesus. It was after a period of intense stress in a familiar place. It was feeling inadequate, homesick, panicked. It was late in the evening. It was getting dark and would be darker. But what is this? Very dangerous situation, a grave situation if you wish. Excuse the pun. And they came to Jesus and they said, don't you care? We're drowning. Listen to that. It wasn't that they didn't believe he was there. They could see him sleeping on a pillow. And that's what blew them away. What's he doing sleeping on a pillow? Doesn't he know we're in trouble? Doesn't he know we're petrified? Doesn't he know we're frightened? Doesn't he know we're in danger? 
Doesn't he care? And it isn't that people don't believe he isn't there. It's that they don't believe he cares. If he doesn't stop the storm, he doesn't care, our reasoning goes. If he cared, he'd get up and stop the storm. So what's he doing sleeping on a pillow? And I have found as the squalls hit my life, and I'm swamped, and I'm drowning, that I have to be very, very careful and disciplined with what I am thinking about God at that point. And I have to affirm on my knees, I know you're aware and I know you care. Otherwise, I might be like the disciples and say, don't you care? And the theory is, if he stopped the storm, I'd know he'd care. And if he doesn't stop the storm, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Not true. So what is this? It's a test. It's only a test. It's the sudden, unexpected, unannounced, unexplained, unfair, not here, not now, not this, that hits us from the side. It's a furious squall. And it is carried by an event. In this case, it was a natural event. It was a wind. It was a squall on a lake that was typical of Galilee. And it came out of nowhere. And sometimes people experience a flood or an earthquake or a natural disaster. And along with that, the squall of fear and apprehension of anger at God. Why did he let this hit my house? Da, 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 da. Doesn't he care? Doesn't he know I love him? Doesn't he know I serve him? So why did the tornado jump over that man's house and hit mine? Etc. Etc. Reminds me of Job. I wrote a book about Job once called Out of the Storm and Into His Arms. And in the first chapter of Job, he has a day of squalls. It had to be a Monday. That's what the book was called originally because it all happened on a day. So it had to be a Monday, I reckoned. What happened? He lost his wealth. He did lose his health in the next chapter. He lost his sheep and his goats and his servants who were murdered by Sabians, cattle thieves. And then he lost his 10 children. Now he lost his goats and his sheep and his camels because thieves stole them. And that he could understand. For the sinfulness of man does that stuff. And he lost his servants to the sword because the guerrilla people came and killed them all, carried off his wealth. And that he could understand. In our fallenness, people do terrible things to each other. Tell me about it. Come back from Uganda working with Whitliffe missionaries in Darfur, in Sudan. Tell me what human beings are capable of doing to human beings. That's understandable, but listen. His 10 kids were in a house having a party. And how did they die? An act of God. A tornado came out of the wilderness, collapsed the house, and they were all killed. That's the dilemma of Job. That's what the book's all about. This incoherent suffering that hid him. All his children gone. Not by a cruel, evil man, but by an act of God. Don't you care? Are you there? He did ask that as well. It isn't fair. 
All those things happened to Job. And he was nearly swamped. He was drowning. His faith was drowning. But at the end of those squalls and at the end of his experience, he said, you know something? I heard all about God, but now I see him, I know him, I know him in a way I never knew him before, and my faith is strengthened. And so why is this? To strengthen our faith. Don't you hate that? I hate that. (laughs) Something happens and you know, and people come up to me and say, you're going to write about this? I don't want to write about it, I say. I just want it to stop. You're going to speak about this? I don't want to speak about it. I just want the storm to stop. But I know that what I learn can be helped to others. For the comfort that I receive, as Corinthians says, is intended to comfort others. And you notice in this passage, there were also other little boats with them. And when Jesus calmed the storm and said, stop it, and it stopped, it was calm for all the other people around, for the other little boats. And that's what's intended. That what happens in our vessel, in our boat, as Jesus calms us down and helps us accept the unacceptable sometimes and says, now you respond rightly to me. Where is your faith? And as we tremblingly say, help thou mine unbelief and try to trust him, then the other little boats are the recipients of the blessing that we are receiving from God. And so why does it happen to strengthen our faith? Certainly, James tells us that. And you know, unbelievers cannot cope with the whole intellectual exercise of figuring out suffering. It makes absolutely no sense to them. I have talked to people that do not believe in Christ. And suffering in the world makes no sense to the unbeliever. But to the believer, as James says, we understand a little tiny bit of the why of suffering. We understand Creation was creation and good, and then the fall came, and it affected everything. It affected the creation. It affected the creatures. It affected the people that should love God so that they hate God. We understand the theology of it. And we also understand, as James says, that when little troubles or squalls come knocking at our door, we are to accept them as friends and not resist them as enemies because, for the Christian, there's a because. This is going to help us endure. And what we learn in one squall will help us for the next. If we quit using all our prayer time for, don't let there be another squall. Don't let my children ever have a squall. Don't let them ever suffer. Don't let them ever do this, that, and the other. And if we could instead say, help us to learn the building blocks of faith, then what we learn in this squall is going to make us strong for that one. You see, God can even use the storm, to prepare us and bless us and save us, in a sense, from the next one. We have many grandchildren, and one of them, Drew, who is our daughter's first child, lives in Chicago, was starting school, now this years ago. He called me up and he said, Nana, I'm really scared about going to school. Would you, would you pray that nothing happens to me tomorrow? I start school, big school. And I'm really nervous. And I said, I'd love to. So I prayed a typical Nana prayer, Lord, keep Drew safe and make him have a lovely day at school and give him friends. And thank you, Jesus, you've heard this prayer. Put the phone down. 
So Drew goes to school, first day, he's very nervous. He's standing in this long line of all these children. He only knows a couple of them from the neighborhood. And there's a very strange person who's going to be his teacher at the front with a little bell. And suddenly, a bee from a nest that hadn't been attended to stings him. Now, what Drew didn't know and what we didn't know is he is highly allergic to bee stings. And because it was his first day at school, he didn't like to step out of the line and say, I've been stung, even though he was beginning to feel really sick. He just stood there until he collapsed on the floor. And by the time the teacher walked down the road <laughs> and found him, he looked like the elephant man, and he couldn't breathe. He was just like this, swollen up. She picked him up and with another teacher ran across and up the street where Oak Park Hospital happened in the grace of God to be. And he was all right. He was helped. About a month later, he came to stay and all the cousins were together. And David, our big David's child and Drew have sort of grown up together. They're the same age. And they took the canoe on this little fishing lake we have at the back of us. And off they went. And they got tangled up among the reeds at the end of the lake. And we were inside and we were cooking barbecue and everything. And we didn't even notice they were lost until everybody had to go out and look for them. And where he had got was literally bee heaven. There was nothing but ants' nests and bee nests and all of these things. And when Drew walked in, after we eventually found them and rescued them, and it was a grand family adventure, he simply said to me, Nana, if the bee hadn't stung me then, and the bee had stung me now, I'd be dead. Very discerning. I was saying when I heard from my grandson, actually, I didn't know what to say to him when he rang me up. Nana, I got stung by a bee and swelled up and went to hospital. And you prayed nothing had happened to me. You know, I mean, I had to answer that. <laughs> my immediate response in hearing from my daughter was, Lord, I'm offended. That was your bee did that. It's his storm. It's his bee. But what he learned from the sting of the bee actually saved him later in life because he's been stung since, but he has his EpiPen now. And God can even use the storm. We have no idea, us little people. How can we figure it out? We have to trust him that he loves and cares and plans for us. Ritunga Padaiti was the son of headhunter. Missionary, a Welsh missionary went into this tribe in India up on the Chinese border, brought the gospel. And Rechunga's father, who was the head of the tribe, came to faith. And he said to his little son, Rechunga, I'm going to send you out, but you're going to have to walk to the missionary school. And it's going to be about an hour's walk through the jungle every day so that you can learn to read and write and come back and bring us the Bible. And so little Rechunga started to walk through the jungle on his own. And one day he was walking through the jungle and suddenly he was aware something was behind him. And he turned around and there was a tiger, huge tiger with gleaming eyes, padding along about 12 foot behind him. Well, the little guy was absolutely petrified. And he thought, now I know I don't run. I know I just keep walking. I know I just keep steady. And he walked the rest of the way to the village, absolutely, as you can imagine, petrified. Tiger never came nearer, just kept his distance, about 12 foot behind him all the way. When he got there, all the villagers came out and they 
gathered him up and they said, we can't believe you're here. We were expecting to come and find your body. And he said, yes, this great big tiger was horrible and it was padding along behind me. And they said, tiger? What tiger? We only know that gorillas have killed two men on the trail today. And they said, we're going to kill anybody that comes from this village to that village. And we knew that you were trying to come to school. And Rachunga said, well, God sent a tiger, you see. And they didn't come near me because of the tiger. God is so clever. And he works in and through and because all of these things. And the one thing he asks us is, where is your faith? Don't you think I'm bigger than this? Don't you think I'm aware of this? And what I wrote in my Bible as I studied this passage was this. Jill Briscoe, do you believe that God is just as much in control when he's seemingly asleep as when he's obviously awake? Because that's the lesson that I have learned and am learning over and over again. Do I believe he is just as much in control when he's seemingly inactive? When he seems to be sleeping on a pillow, when my prayers aren't getting answered, when the storm's getting worse and the waves are swamping me, do I believe that he's as much in control when I do not see a prayer answered as when I see him saying, stop, and it stops? That's what he asks of me and of you. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? And if we can struggle through <laughs> to beginning to learn how to trust him, then we will learn, not only for ourselves, to know God better, know him more in ways we've never known him before, but all the other little boats around us are going to be blessed. I think the building blocks and principles of faith that we need to look at are the fact that one squall at a time, we only have today. That's another lesson, this squall. And if you waste your energy worrying about the squall that you could have done something about, maybe if I could I, why didn't I? You're gonna rob yourself of the energy for today. And if you worry about the madman waiting for you around the corner, you're gonna to rob today of its strength. As Jesus said, sufficient unto the day is this squall. Now attend to this. That's one big lesson. And secondly, he's in control of what he allows. He's in control of what he allows. And yes, there will be a final squall, obviously. And we will drown, <laughs> or whatever. But we will never drown if Jesus is in the boat. I mean, we'll never die. For he that believes in Jesus will never die, it says in the scriptures. Our body will die, but we won't. We'll never have a second when we are unconscious of God. In fact, the moment that we die, we'll be more conscious of everything than we've ever been in our lives. And I often think that this life is like a dream. And when we drown in that final squall, whenever it is, and he's numbered our days, he's decided when that will be, that we'll wake up and we'll say, oh, I've been asleep for 40 years or 50 years or 70 years. And this is reality. And we'll wake up to all of these things that we've believed up here or say that we believe up there. And so the squalls are sent to us in order that we might trust him, not only for the final squall, but for all the little squalls in between and all the big squalls in between as well. 
God is not going to explain it to us here. Contentment is accepting the unexplained, says Amy Carmichael, and trusting him with it. Contentment is going to sleep when there's no earthly reason you should be in the squall. What happens to me is I can't sleep when trouble comes. Now, I can't sleep because I'm jet-lagged and my sleep patterns have gone forever, I think. But I can't sleep when I'm anxious. And I was struggling with this about, well, quite a while ago now, going for night after night without sleep that I desperately needed to do my work the next day. And I remember saying to the Lord, how can I sleep when my mind keeps running like a frightened rabbit from one scary place to another? Come to the deep place where nobody goes and meet me there, he said. So one night, worrying my way through the dark hours in one more bed, in one more country, with one more challenge looming, I went there. He was waiting. So how on earth do I sleep tonight, I asked, lying there wide awake, rehearsing all the awful squalls that might happen on the morrow. Whenever shall I fall asleep? Soon enough, he said. If you sleep in the throne room and hear the seraph sing, and look above and see the galaxy of grace, and sleep near the ark, Sleep near the ark, the word of God. Then you'll sleep. Trust me. How could Jesus sleep through the storm? And he wants us to as well. How could he rest? Because he had perfect faith in his heavenly father. Perfect faith in his heavenly father. He knew he cared. He knew he was in control. So what was this, and why was this, and when was this? We've looked at it all, but who was this? And that's the secret. Who was this? That's what they asked. They were terrified, verse 41. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Who is this? Who has come into your vessel? They took him as he was into his vessel. How was he? He was God. Who do you have living in your life? Who do I? God. The God of storms. The God of universes. Not a little bit of God. All of God. You don't get a little bit of God. You can't have a little bit of a person. You have all you're going to get in Christ living within you. That's who it was. Who is this? In Portugal, beautiful New Age worshiper, Beautiful English girl, long blonde hair, into everything that Europe's into, came to see me and said, I think you can help me. I'm looking for meaning. I'm looking for purpose. And I looked at her and I said, well, you believe many things. I can see that with the crystals and everything else you're wearing. She said, yes, I, I, I believe in many gods and I'm doing my best, but, but I'm still not finding what I'm looking for. And I said, well, which out of all the gods and philosophies you're into is helping you the most? And she said, oh, that's easy, astrology. And I said, isn't that amazing, coming up to Christmas? I know the story of three famous astrologers, or maybe more, who left everything in Persia and went an incredible journey, and they brought all that they were, all they believed, and they found a baby in a manger, and they knelt down and worshipped. They brought their astrology and said, I'm submitting what I believe to that baby. And I said, Victoria, you have to decide who that baby is in the manger. And when you find that out, you'll find what you're looking for. Who is he?
manger? That's the question. Who's the baby in the manger? Who the man of Galilee? Who the one who asks for heart trust, for the faith that sets men free? Who the baby in the manger? Who the man who stills my storm? Who the great and glorious Savior who will guide my vessel home? Who the one I love so deeply? Who the man who came to tell gospel truth about salvation? Who the one who does things well? He is Jesus. He is Jesus. He's the one to still the fear. He's the mighty. He's the lovely. (laughs) And despite the storm is here. In the sudden squalls that swamp me in the waves of sin and strife. Whipped by winds that are against me as I nearly drown in life. As they come and roar and blow and batter and the devil does his part. Nothing will my spirit shatter. There is stillness in Is the stillness in your heart? When the stillness in your heart, and you're sleeping on the pillow in the arms of God, let the storm stop. Yes, and please, and it would be wonderful, God, if this was over. But you're safe. You're spiritually safe. You're at rest. There is stillness in my heart. One squall at a time, day by day by day by day. On behalf of Jesus Christ, I ask you, where is your faith? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, Help me to trust when I am swamped, forgetting who's on board, panicked, frightened, tired out. Help me to see you, Lord. Believing even if I drown, I'll never be alone. For you are in my vessel and God is on the throne. I believe it, Lord. Publicly, I affirm it. I believe. I believe you are God of God and Lord of Lords, God of storms, God of squalls, totally adequate, sovereign, powerful, loving me, enough to die for me, caring enough to forgive me, walking into my hurried heart, settling me down inside. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, that sometimes I say, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? And I would ask that I might have faith to believe that you are sovereignly active in whatever squall comes into my life. The final purposes of God would be worked out. Help thou mine unbelief. Oh, Lord, help thou mine unbelief. And I would be remiss if I did not ask any of you here who aren't quite sure what I'm talking about, are you sure he's in your boat? 
sure he's in your life. Have you ever asked him in? Have you taken him just as he is in his lordship? Have you honored him with the prized place in the vessel, the cushion for the honored guest? Have you placed Christ there? Well, if you haven't, ask him. Say, come in, Lord. It's as simple as that. Be my savior. Oh, my savior, my Lord. And in this moment, as we're just going to be quiet, I ask you to open your heart. Forget everybody else around you. Maybe some of you just need to kneel. Maybe some of you need to cry out, God, help me, save me. Come to me, strengthen me. So, Lord, I ask, see us here. Bless us. Touch us. Change us. Strengthen us. Kiss ourselves. Remind us of your love, your care. Amen.